Hi, and welcome to Bookable Space, the audio literary salon. Author of Remembered, I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. I'm a writer, host, presenter, academic, and a reader. I love being read to. In each podcast episode, a writer will read to us and answer three questions. We might talk about how they developed the characters, the sense of place, why they wrote the book, something they learned through research, and more. Ultimately, through each episode, I hope to get to know each author a little more, and I hope that you do too. Each episode is about 30 minutes. You'll find the author's bio and a bit about the book below the episode. Thanks for joining in. Good evening and welcome to Bookable Space. I'm your host, Yvonne Balafelsen, and today we're joined by Stephanie Costarillas. Stephanie, thanks so much for joining us and for talking to us about Myzanthi, for reading to us. I'm so looking forward to that and giving us some insight on the book. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's wonderful to meet you, Yvonne. Oh, you as well. So we're going to dive right in. And can I just ask you in about one or two sentences, can you please tell us a bit about the book? Sure. This is a book about the human heart in adversity, and specifically about a Greek immigrant woman whose wartime secrets teach the criminal lawyer she helped raise about love's triumph over injustice. It is about survival and profound loyalty and affection. That's beautiful. Could we have our first reading, please? Of course, I'd be delighted. I am going to read from the opening of the book, Ivan, where the reader is going to meet Nick Malonis, who is the first narrator in the book. And um, I'll let him speak for himself. Here he goes. Like the Greek grandfather I was afraid of, I'm a patient man with a wicked temper. The upside? Being pissed off makes me good at what I do. Death penalty legal defense. Lawyers like me deploy anger strategically for maximum effect in the courtroom and, uh, all right, occasionally at home, the latter with mixed results. Ask my Korean-American wife, Janet. I met Janet when she graduated from UC Riverside and had just started teaching third grade in California. This was about 16 years after I'd graduated UC Riverside myself. Balanced a bartending job with courses at Cal Western Law, then signed on at the Riverside Public Defender's Office. Janet knocked my socks off, and I got lucky. She married me. I've been apologizing ever since for bringing cross-examination home to the dinner table. There's a family disagreement? Right. Let's reconstruct the facts over the chicken thighs and kimchi. Then fix a hot laser beam on whoever's guilty of a contradictory statement. Janet's resilient younger memory usually prevails, by the way. And my twin daughters, I married late in life, so Maddie and Tessa are only 17. Unburdened by procedural niceties, they feel free to laugh at me whenever Janet catches me out, which makes me about uh, as effective as a fart in a hurricane. However. When it's a matter of ethics or my kids' safety, we're in a street fight, then I win. Grizzled old dog that I am. Okay, I exaggerate. Not totally grizzled. 
At 66, I stay lean and work out so this lawyering life doesn't kill me any earlier than it has to. Actually, that's not true either. I work out because the motor inside my guts idles so hard some days, my RPMs jerk me awake at 4.30 a.m. when eucalyptus trees rustle outside my bedroom window. I spring up, comb my gray hair long over my bald spot, and begin living another day the way I think, which is project calm and avoid bullshit with the boundless exception of my daughters. Now, Tessa's fomenting a crisis of conscience, and it's blindsiding me, stoking memories of my Greek childhood nanny, Xanthi, whose packet of old letters sits in my drawer like an unexploded incendiary device. She died years ago in the Peloponnesus, God rest her. Meanwhile, I'm wussing out here, hoping Tessa's geyser of questions goes dormant amid my family's daily, messy, satisfying life. Me, hard-ass in denial, Nick Malonis Esquire, sole practitioner, 4129.5 Main Street, Riverside, California. 30 years serving clients in the Inland Empire, Los Angeles, and San Diego. No frills, all facts. <laughs> I love that he, you have a, a background in law, and Nick has a background in law. And so I'd love to ask, what inspired you to write the book? Where did the idea for it come from? Yeah, it's a great question. It was the voices, Yvonne, who came to me. I know that sounds kind of diagnosable, you know, but I, I don't mean it that way. <laughs> Nick's voice came to me, again, because I do have a family steeped in the law. Everyone in my family except my late mother is a lawyer, including me. And there was something about that voice, about justice, injustice, and its relationship to people we once knew that I, I couldn't silence. So I found myself writing down short, short monologues from Nick. Side by side to that was the voice of Xanthi, who is based on a person I knew in childhood, a woman from Greece. And it was her memory and what she'd been through, which is not exactly what's in the book, but the cultural and affectionate things she brought to my family while she helped care for us as children that just never left me. I do want to say that nobody I know has done the serious wrongdoing that occurs in this book. Okay. So I am not, <laughs> I am not ascribing that to anyone I know, but it helped to render those voices, Yvonne, that my first career was in the performing arts before I became a lawyer. I was in uh, New York theater for about 15 years. And so I heard these voices almost in monologue form. And then they drove me to listen to them and to start constructing a plot that I did not expect. I love that the characters told you the story that they want to tell and that it was unexpected. So it, like you could be curious throughout and not know what was going to happen next or who it was going to happen to. Right. And yet you kept writing. I also quite like that the good things were inspired by someone you knew, but not the bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks for saying that. It gets me off the hook. But it, it's true. The bad things, many of them, were required by where the story was going. 
I had to confront the fact that if the characters were going toward a particular confrontation or revelation with one another, something very profound needed to have happened for them to reach that insight. And that's why some of the very hard things in the book emerged. Wow. Did we have another reading thing? Oh, of course. Thank you. I'm going to um, go now to Nick's first glimpses of Xanthi. We've heard him as an adult in the first reading, and that adult voice will help guide us through the novel as we visit his childhood, as he reads the letters in Xanthi's voice, and her voice will take over eventually in certain parts of the book. But for now, we're going to go an interim step to when he first met her. Xanthi came into my childhood in August of 1954, arriving at Union Station near the Chicago River, final stop in a transatlantic journey to help take care of me and my siblings in suburban Oak Park while mom underwent treatment, such as it was in those days, for breast cancer metastases. Xanthi was a friend of my maternal grandmother's, maybe even a distant relative. Didn't matter to me as a four-year-old boy. Whoever she was related to, she left her home on the Peloponnesus to live with us for room and board and some money to send back home after a string of cataclysms bludgeoning Greece at the time. A civil war not finished until 1949, a massive 1953 earthquake triggering hundreds of tremors rolling under the Ionian island of Zakynthos, obliterating nearby Kefalonia. The earth's shaking felt as far as the mainland where Xanthi lived. Thousands dead, no buildings standing, Israeli, British, and American navies steaming toward a dust-encrusted harbor. I learned the history of these catastrophes as an adult, how Greece teetered on heaving tectonic plates sliding under Europe, Asia, Africa. Enough. Xanthi left for America at age 50 to support progeny, she wouldn't see for years. She stood with her suitcases at the edge of Canal Street outside Union Station when mom pulled up with us kids in our car. Yes, 1954. I remember a two-tone Chevy, no fins. I think it was white and turquoise. Ample back seat, white wall tires, which we thought were gorgeous. I picture a strip of chrome on the side, always reflecting sun. Yes, I remember. The view from the back window. Xanthi's heavy, knit beige stockings, black shoes, black dress, black babushka for travel, alone at the curb, stolid on her muscular legs, under a large bosom, having dragged everything she'd brought across Europe, Britain, through New York City's port of entry, Ellis Island, which closed later that same year, across Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, onto miles of railroad tracks leading past Chicago's stockyard stench and into the nine and a half urban blocks comprising Union Station. How in God's name do you pack for that kind of trip? There she stood, in black garments, individual, resilient, her green eyes anomalous to the Peloponnesus, more common among mountain Greeks, she was like that one blade of grass my dad's lawnmower couldn't cut no matter how many times he went over it. Almost no gray hairs glinted among her dark ones tucked back into a tiny bun. 
she stepped toward us, pulling out of a movie, away from the first decades of a century pockmarked by war, famine, earthquakes, and a Great Depression denting the hubris of Union Station, colossal behind her. Once the initial week's honeymoon of fastidious courtesy passed, though, Xanthi was already letting us know she thought English was graceless, to put it mildly. She refused to learn much of it. Holding a late summer peach described in Greek by gently rolling consonants and succulent vowels, she asked, what is the English for this uh, word for this fruit? Peach, we said. Peach. Bits? Bits? She laughed, looking like she smelled something unspeakable. Then said in Greek, you call that a language? When our parents were out of the house, she was in charge. If the phone rang, she was to answer, no one is home, call again, please, which she laid down like machine gun fire. Dropping the receiver into its cradle, she turned her attention to more important things like the vacuum and toilet. Made sense to me. Her hands were hard as a stevedore's. How ridiculous our own soft hands must have seemed to her. She took a clean handkerchief from her pocket to wipe my small face, wagged her head with an ancient smile, said my name as though I were the most precious thing, Nicholas. She loved us for the rest of her life. Oh, how wonderful. Thank you. What a touching description and a lovely way to remember someone. It leads me into my last question, which is a compound question. <laughs> okay, go for it, counsel. <laughs> <laughs> so what sort of research did you do to bring the characters and story to life? And it feels like such a timely book, and it seems it will resonate with readers around the world. What did you find out in your research or even writing as research that might help readers grappling with similar histories and secrets today? Thank you for those questions. I'm going to answer one one craft question and one substance question. Craft-wise, I had to find a way to bring to life both these narrative voices, Nick's and Xanthi's. Nick is a native English speaker. Xanthi is a native Greek speaker. Now, Greek was my first language, actually. I rapidly learned English, so I am for all intents and purposes, and a native English speaker. But I remember what that felt like, dreaming in Greek, having people love me unconditionally in Greek. And it was an extraordinary experience. So I did uh, research on Greek sayings, Greek customs again, even though I'd lived through them. I needed to remind myself what a person in Xanthi's position would sound like after being translated from her Greek letters, which Nick discovers after having those translated into English so he can read them. And therefore, the next, the final reading you'll hear has many of those Greek aphorisms and attitudes in them because I cannot, could not write her in Greek for an English speaking audience. All right. That's the craft answer. But that took me deeper into the substance research, which was about the Greek Civil War, which I did not live through personally. But the woman after whom Xanthias modeled did live through it. And I had to inform myself about what the atrocities were that occurred during that civil war. 
and there were atrocities, neighbor to neighbor, and so forth, culture to culture, despite the underlying similarity of the Greek and Turkish cultures, in many instances, there is also a religious divide. Um, there was a history of 400 years of Ottoman occupation of Greece, and on and on. You can hear echoes, as I'm speaking, I suspect, of our current sorrows about what is happening in the world based on millennia of history and difficulty. And I found out a great deal about what happened during that war. I found out why people don't talk about it a lot in Greek-American circles here. It's very much as it was in Spain, I think. There are some conflicts and some difficulties that some people don't want to talk about. I'm not advocating for talking or not talking. I'm just saying that's how it was. I am struck as well by the fact that the book is about what an American learns about injustice, the incapacity of law, which we, many of us who are in the law, strive for to be a just thing, and the personal resilience and capacity to love in the face of what is unforgivable. It's a, I'm not saying this book offers, offers answers. I'm saying this book gives us a man's discovery of how deep a woman went to survive with her soul intact in the face of what was going on. So that's where my research led me. I think it's a beautiful gift to, to give to readers because what it can also do is empower people to have conversations that maybe they didn't have, whatever they're willing to share and however much of their truth or history or past or secrets, whatever that unlocks for them it might provide that opportunity for both inner reflection, but also to have those conversations with family or with friends or therapists or even the paper, just someone that they, a way that they can have an outlet. And so I don't think you have to give us the answers. I think giving us the, the space to have the questions is often, that's um, a beautiful space and a beautiful gift to be able to give us. So thank you oh. for that. Oh, Thank you for expressing that so beautifully. All we who write fiction can do is write it as authentically as we can. Would you like my final reading? Would please. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let, me, let me find that page. We are now going to hear Xanthi's voice. This will be from one of her letters. And by the way, let me clarify. These letters that Nick is reading are not letters to him. They are letters from Xanthi to her daughter back in Greece. So he has never read what she's written. And he will discover, I'm not going to tell you because it'll be a spoiler, but he will discover things that he never knew by reading these letters. So here is one of uh, Xanthi's letters to her daughter, whose name is Kula. She's telling Kula how she has become a second maternal presence to Nick and his siblings, and how she cares for those children now that she's in the United States. There is something else I do, my Kula. It is not required. It is important. Nico, the middle child, often gets up at night and walks into his parents' bedroom to lie down on the floor at Mrs. Helen's bedside. Since I have trouble sleeping, I hear him 
and crack open my door to check on the child as he makes small noises, dragging his blanket across the hallway floor. I have seen Mrs. Helen raise her head when little Nico opens his parents' bedroom door. She blows him a kiss and lies back down almost as an invitation. She knows this child has reached her by summoning his courage to climb out of his own bed until his short legs achieve the floor. He has waddled across hallway carpeting that must seem like an immensity to a four-year-old boy. He has crossed the sea without a boat. I hear his struggles and shuffling. Once he enters Mrs. Helen's and Mr. Milonas's room, he often forgets to close their door. I can see his mother is aware he is on the carpet near her. She does not interrupt his arrangements as he lays down his blanket and curls himself onto it. She feels his pudgy hand stretching up to make sure she is home. Though he is four, he sucks his thumb sometimes. He rises slightly at moments, not even looking, just lifting up enough to touch Mrs. Milonis's leg. She reaches down and touches him too. She respects his needs. I have never seen Mrs. Helen carry Nico back to his own bed. Some might think she should as a matter of discipline, especially here, where sleeping arrangements are so strangely separate. Well, to me, the reason is clear. Mrs. Helen knows better than to recreate the loneliness that gripped her child when she disappeared for surgeries and returned with caved-in flesh. He remembers the emptiness of her absence. She understands. Nico must be confident she is in her bed, where she belongs, continuing to breathe and emit herself into the night, as I did for you when I could. It is inevitable, I suppose, that Nico's mother is not always there precisely when he needs her. No one's mother can be. Here, risks are smaller than they were for you in Greece, but a child's heart hurts anyway. If his parents come home late, he grows frightened. I hear him get down from his bed and drag his blanket into the hallway, then stop, because he must see their room is still dark. Those nights, I open my own door slightly and say, Oh, Nico, is that you? I thought it was a little mouse. I make gestures showing him what I mean. I use the Greek word, which he understands, because the family and I affectionately call children little mice sometimes. He answers, Kiriaksanthi, it's not a mousy, it's me. I understand his broken Greek, so I say, Oh my goodness, Nico, you were so quiet, I thought only a mouse could walk that way. He usually asks, Where is my mommy? This worked well, Kula, until Mrs. Helen had a scare with her doctor last week. He thought he found another lump in her remaining breast, so she had to go into the hospital for testing, they said. Nico was tense. He seemed to know Mrs. Helen was in danger. I heard him rise early one night and walk toward his parents' bedroom and stop. Mr. Milonas was still in his study downstairs. Little Nico turned and arrived at my door, which I had quietly shut so he would not see me spying on him. He knocked and I opened immediately. We did not speak. He walked into my room and laid his blanket on the floor where he could reach up and touch me to make sure I was there once I got him to bed. I offered to sit nearby while he lay in my bed, but he refused. He wanted the floor this time. I told him not to be afraid. Yesterday, Mrs. Helen returned from the hospital tests. 
Doctors have given her different medications. She has avoided catastrophe. I don't know who she spoke to about my actions while she was absent, Kula. Who would have known? What I know is she came to me in the kitchen after dinner yesterday and embraced me strongly, as though she were my own daughter. For a moment, her body's warmth made me think, I was holding you. I almost screamed with longing. I felt in my endless veins each one of the thousands of miles separating me from you, and my blood flowed fast, rushing to reach you in Greece. My Kula, I miss you every hour. In my dreams, I search all over for you. I eat the universe to find you. Well, how lovely. And it's so nice that we get to see her relationship with her daughter through the things that she's telling, writing her about um, Nico and his mother's relationship. And we get to see that longing from both sides of it. And it's just so, so well done. So thank you so much for letting that be your final reading. Thank you, Yvonne. So where can we buy My Xanthi? Well, I'm going to direct readers uh, to my website because it has all the information there. And the website is stephaniecotzerillis.com. Would you like me to spell it for people? Or? Sure. Okay. Stephanie, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E, Cotzerillis, C-O-T-S-I-R-I-L-O-S. And it's all one word, no caps. You'll see at my website that uh, Mike Santi is available broadly through every, uh, virtually every online outlet. Ingram Spark is the business I published through. I should tell readers that they can also get this book through their neighborhood bookstore. If it's not on the shelves, you can ask the bookstore to order the book through Ingram Spark, and that will support the bookstore as well, which I strongly encourage you to do. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for being my guest, for reading to us and talking about the book and your insights and experience writing it. Thank you ever so much for your generosity. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Yvonne. Anytime. Thanks for listening to Bookable Space. If you don't already have the book and want to read more, buy it, borrow it from your local library, read it, and if you enjoy it, review it if you haven't already. I hope you'll join us for the next episode of Bookable Space, the audio literary salon with your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. Follow me on Twitter at YBattlefelton, on Instagram on why I write Battlefelton for pictures, interview insights, and more.